0: We come this Lord's Day to continue our study in the grand topic, the God of all comforts. God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ had said to God in olden times, I delight to do Thy will. Christ Himself expressed His desire to do God's will during His earthly ministry. Indeed, Jesus told His disciples that to do God's will was like food and drink to Him. Christ fed upon it and drew strength from obeying His Father. In John 6, Christ explicitly stated the will of the Father which He would surely accomplish. It was to save every single person given to Him by His Father and lose not a one of us it is important to recognize the congruence of the two statements of God's will which Christ delights to do. In Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10, God's will is to set aside the animal offerings that He takes no pleasure in and replace them with the offering of Christ that saves sinners, which God delights in. In these texts, the delightful will of God is expressed in terms of the means Christ must use to accomplish God's will. In John 6, God's will is stated in terms of its purpose and result, to save all of His people that He gives to Christ unto everlasting life. Thus, the two statements are identical in ultimate effect. One expresses the demanded outcome that all God's people be saved by Christ, while the other expresses the means that animal offerings be discarded and Christ make Himself a sacrifice to save the Lord's people. If Christ was to fulfill the will as stated in John 6 to save everyone given to Him by God, then He must delight to do the will expressed in Hebrews 10 that He sacrificed Himself as God's Lamb and shut down the Old Testament animal sacrifices that could never save anybody. No doubt the disciples hadn't a clue about the will of God expressed in Hebrews 10 But they desired the will expressed in John 6. They thought Jesus could save them to everlasting life without making Himself an offering for their sin, which is the will of God expressed in Hebrews 10. That expression repulsed the disciples. They wanted to keep the Old Testament rituals, temple service, ethnic traditions, and be saved from wrath to come all at the same time. They didn't stop to ask, then why would they need Jesus? Where does he even fit in under their scenario? Today we have false teachers who try to decouple Christ saving his people from the necessity of the death Christ must die to achieve that end. They say Jesus needn't die for the forgiveness of our sins because God is good and can forgive sins without satisfying justice or keeping his word to punish our sin with death. But God's Word states otherwise. The end of saving His people from their sins and the means of Christ making Himself a bloody sacrifice for that sin are both aspects of God's will which Christ delights to do. When Jesus satisfied the will of God in dying to save us from our sin, He had in mind the very same people that God had given Him to save according to His will. The will of God that His sworn priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, should make Himself an offering for sin is the very same will that gave Christ a people to save to the uttermost. Christ fulfills perfectly both aspects of God's will and delights to do so. He actually saves all those given to Him by the Father and He offered up Himself in the place of those very same people to accomplish God's will as their substitute sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice never fails to save those he had in mind to ransom from their sin. If you have trusted in Jesus' sacrifice for your salvation, think of it. Then you have filled up a part of the delight of Jesus in delivering his people and in saving his people. Jesus rejoiced in his spirit that God had chosen to whom to reveal the gospel, not to the wise and prudent of this world, but to spiritual babes. Christ gave thanks that God saves whom he will save, according to his good pleasure and purpose and will. God chose to whom he would reveal Christ. God chose whom he would give to Christ for Christ to rescue forever. And Christ rejoices in God's will and purposes in all of this. The disciples didn't know the dreadful cost of fulfilling God's will as Christ disclosed it to them. They didn't connect the will of God for Christ to save His people with the will of God that Christ should suffer and die as their sacrifice. But we know that great cost now. Indeed, we celebrate Christ's sacrifice to accomplish God's will and our redemption every single Lord's Day and hopefully day and night, hour by hour in our minds and in our hearts. We have been let in on a grand truth here that our everlasting joy and hope depend upon our Lord Jesus obeying God's oath, appointing Him to be our great priest and therefore to make a sacrifice that is delightful to God because it forever saves all His loved ones. No wonder we are greatly comforted by God's oath to Christ, making Him our priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, we've been focusing in on a few verses in Hebrews chapter 10. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, that is, when Jesus cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice an offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. There is a particular delight of Christ to do God's will Shown in the incident in John's Gospel, the second chapter, in overturning the animal sacrifices in which there was no delight. There is no delight by God in the animal offerings. And Christ exhibits that when he went into the temple and cleansed it and let loose all the animals and overturned the money changers' tables. And this was very early in Christ's ministry. Of course, there's a second cleansing toward the end of Christ's ministry. And we read of this incident in John chapter 2 beginning at verse 12 this morning. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples. And they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting and when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep, and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now this story brings to mind a funny incident in the lives of the young people in our home that we used to be shepherded off to attend vacation Bible school at other people's churches, mostly at North Greenwood Baptist. One of the things that was funny about it was they had these series of crafts that they would have the the little children carry out. For example, They had a wallet that you could sew with some fake leather thread, put together a wallet. Yes, you're supposed to take it home to your dad. One of the most pathetic and tragic examples was that we were told to bring one of those little small school pictures to Vacation Bible School. And the craft that day was that we were to take that picture and cut it out to the right size and glue it to the bottom of a glass cigarette ashtray and affix to the back of it a little square felt so it wouldn't mark the furniture. And, of course, none of us really realized at the time, but the, the symbolism of their parents stubbing out hot cigarettes on the image of the face of their own children was just tragic, if you think about it. Tragico-comical, I guess you could say. But some smarty-pants later on said that the kind of craft they thought that we should have at Vacation Bible School was that the children should all be taught to braid whips like Jesus did to cleanse the temple. We laughed about how scandalized all the adults would be that people should take that famous episode from the gospels and apply it to the lives of young people that maybe that's what they should be focusing on in following after Christ is learning to drive out from their lives and from the society around them all the things that God hates and to use those little whips as a symbol if not an actual means of such cleansing of our hearts and of our churches, but here it is in Christ's ministry that he cleanses the temple and drives out the people who sold the animals and the money changers and so forth. And this is an example of the way society slowly commercializes everything, no matter how sacred it might be or how precious it might be. In the olden days, everybody brought their own flag, but now they pass out those little bitty stick flags that they manufacture for 1000 per $10, and they stick them all in the ground all over the place, and people wave them if they feel like it. But basically, we've outsourced patriotism on the 4th of July to those people who buy those flags in large bundles and put them all out on the street so that we don't have to. And so that we can go about our lives and be vaguely reminded of the purpose of the 4th of July without actually having to exert ourselves. And of course the government and the non-profit groups, they bear all the expense so we don't have to. Well you see what had happened in Israel's day was that the offering up of sacrifices has been reduced to a commercial exchange. Who needs to bring their own sacrifice when you can just bring a little money and buy it on site. Don't have to worry about transporting it or shepherding it down the stony roads or through the city gates and so forth and so on, cleaning up after it. No, you can just sanitize all that. In effect, your sacrifice to God just becomes a monetary cost to you. Now, there are no doubt a lot of other problems that Christ was also addressing in this whole racket that was going on. Perhaps they were taking advantage of the worshipers and charging outrageous prices. Perhaps they were pawning off animals with defects that they had cleverly hidden in order to save money and make a better profit. All these things are possibly true. But the fact of the matter is that this story indicates the isolation and the alienation of the people from the sacrifices, from the animal sacrifices. Because you think of how it was meant to be that a family would raise animals, some of which would be designated for sacrifices to God. And yet, the family, especially the younger members, would become attached to these animals, just like they do become attached to their animals in 4-H, only to be sold and led to the slaughter, And the bitter, hard truth of animal husbandry is thereby ingrained in their hearts and in their minds. But if we all like to live in the city and urban areas and don't want to have to deal with growing animals and feeding animals and butchering and slaughtering animals and cutting up their flesh for meat, well, then you see we become alienated from the sacrifice which God had ordained. And I suggest to you that this may speak of part of the reason that God took no delight in the sacrifice. It had become a mechanical thing, a commercial thing, on top of which, of course, the principal reason was that it could never take away sin. But how worthless is a sacrifice that both can't take away sin and doesn't, please the Lord and that the people are alienated themselves from and isolated from it. And it's at arm's length by the transaction of money. Men had managed, had arranged to strip away the personal connection, the personal connection that they were meant to have with the animal sacrifice. I send, therefore, this sweet helpless animal must die in my place to appease the wrath of God. Now it was just a question of money. Everybody knows that if there's a crime committed, it's worse to go to jail than it is to just pay a small fine, isn't it? So the animal sacrifice system of Israel has degenerated into a a fine system, a ticketing type offense. And made it more of a market transaction than a penal sacrifice. But the story continues. Christ did indeed purge the temple, drive away the animals, overturn the money tables, and expresses the opposition of God to their animal sacrifices. It's interesting to observe this given the teaching of Hebrews 10, Psalm 40 and so forth that here Jesus in a concrete way in a very dramatic way expresses God's opposition to their animal sacrifices in which He takes no delight and He manifests that by the actions that He takes in driving them away from the temple because the people had so disregarded the offerings to God. And a few verses later, Jesus describes Himself as the sacrifice that will be pleasing to God. See in verse 18, Then answered the Jews and said unto Him, What sign showest Thou unto us, seeing that Thou dost these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Christ is talking about his crucifixion and resurrection here. And notice who He's pinning the blame on for destroying His body. Those people that He's speaking to. When you destroy this temple that is my body, I will raise it again in three days. It's a very oblique and yet very pointed promise that they would betray Him, that they would crucify Him, put Him to an open shame and grief, make Him a curse of the law, They would have contempt for Him when they did it. It wasn't accidental. He didn't trip and fall over a cliff, did He? No, they destroyed the temple of the Lord Jesus. They would have contempt for the sacrifice of Jesus. Indeed, they would murder the Lord Jesus. They would unwittingly, in their hatred of the Savior and of God, they would slay the sacrifice that was God's lamb to save poor sinners. Notice that they clung to the animal sacrifices that God didn't delight in. Why? Because they exalted in the temple and in all the ritual and all the offerings and sacrifices and denounced Christ on the false notion that He was somehow disregarding and denigrating their glorious temple and all the things that went into it. But they clung to the animal sacrifices that God had no delight in, and they despised that one sacrifice that God so delights in. So much so that they put the Lord Jesus to death on the cross. That was the depth of their despising of the delightful sacrifice that God is well pleased in. And the connection of this incident in John 2 with Psalm 69 could not be more instructive. You remember when Christ had finished cleansing the temple, His disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. They saw that as a zealous act of Christ that alienated the people from the Lord Jesus because Psalm 69 describes the zeal of Messiah that the people hate Him for that the people despise Him for. And you think of how it couldn't be more instructive, this connection to Psalm 69, for it foretold Christ as our substitute and wicked men's repudiation of Him as well. How Psalm 69 reads as far as the treatment of Christ by the people as our sacrifice is mirrored in Christ's description of how the people would despise Him and put Him to death as our sacrifice. He's living out the psalm which His Spirit conveyed to the psalmist David all those centuries before. But let's review Psalm 69 and see some of these truths. Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come through deep waters where the floods overflow me. And I once pointed out to you all that this is a picture of baptism by immersion representing the fear, the dread, and the terror, and the danger of death. Death by flooding, death by suffocation through drowning is a cultural truism throughout all of human society, isn't it? The fear of drowning. The fear of water. Some places in the world people are so afraid of the water that they they dare not even walk out ankle deep into the ocean. And that makes it really tough on them if that's where their culture carries out baptisms. And it really instills in the symbol of baptism, the ordinance of baptism, more of the picture of what this is about. Baptism is a sign of being in union with Christ in His death, and it is also a defiant answer to the world that we do not fear death because we have risen again in Christ and one day we shall rise again physically in Christ. And therefore, we are pleased to be identified with Christ's death and with His resurrection and willing to declare that those things hold no fear or grip over us anymore, the fear of death. Even in some people's personal experience of baptism, there is a fear because of the ingrained fear of drowning. Well, this text starts out with the Messiah talking about death as symbolized by sinking in the mud or the floods overflowing him and him drowning. I'm weary of my crying, my throat is dried, mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. So here is the the irony of the sacrifice of Christ that He takes on Himself our sins and is treated as if He is guilty in our place. And yet He is concerned that His people not be confounded when Christ is put to death, that they not be ashamed. And he knows in the end they won't be ashamed, but for a while at least they're ashamed. Peter was ashamed, you remember. He denied the Lord Jesus. They all forsook Him and fled. Jesus told them that night that God's sword of judgment would strike the shepherd and the sheep would be scattered. And so here in Psalm 69 is a prayer of Christ for His people when He is put to death and treated as guilty in their place. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up and the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. You see that Christ is both reproached because He is traduced as a sinner by the wicked men around Him. And He is also reproached because He has embraced and taken on Himself the hatreds of wicked people towards His Father, towards His God. He is treated as guilty and despised by the people because he has been faithful to God and is doing his will, doing that which delights him, as you recall. And then it says, when I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. And I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. They that sit in the gate speak against me, and I was the song of drunkards. But as for me, my prayers unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of thy mercy, hear me, in the truth of thy salvation, deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me, and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. You see here we hear echoed the prayers and the pleas that Christ offered in Psalm 22 where first he describes being forsaken by God, put to misery and shame, mocked and taunted, stripped naked, given vinegar to drink, all the travails of the cross being strung up there and having his heart slowly explode from the pressure of the vain attempt of the body to maintain its life. And then, of course, in Psalm 22, at verse 22, becomes the shift where it, it transpires that God did not despise the sacrifice of Christ. God did hear Him when He cried. God did raise Him up and vindicate Him after He had died. And the whole gospel then cascades out of that throughout the future of time so that it comes to the point where in days long into the future, people will be told that God had done this. Done this unto Christ. Done this unto their salvation. So here in Psalm 69, a similar pattern exists. And hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw nigh to my soul. Redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Mine adversaries are all before thee. Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters. But I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Notice, among other things, how Christ takes upon Himself the people's hatred of God. To the extent they hate God, they hate Him too. And He is made to bear that. He who loves God. He who is perfectly obedient to God. He who is very God of God, incarnate in humanity. Then notice how Christ embraces our sin as His sin. We mentioned that earlier. He takes upon Himself our crimes and our foolishness and treats them as if they are His own and as if He is being punished for them. Notice how Christ longs for God to rescue His soul, and yet He knew that this rescue would only come after He had been put in the ground, buried dead for three days, for three nights. And then notice how Christ cries out to God to recognize to recognize and not disregard his suffering as the sacrifice. All of these fulfilled just as they were in Psalm 22. God had great regard for the suffering of his dear Son. That is the teaching of all the Scriptures. And yet, in his humanity, he was permitted to express himself at the time and place in which. It was reasonable for any person to believe that he had been despised and forsaken. God didn't care a bit for the suffering he was going through. But the Scriptures teach us God cared a great deal. God accepted the sacrifice. God had planned the sacrifice from eternity past. And it delighted God that Christ should offer up Himself in this manner to take away the animal sacrifices that could never take away our sin. So God has great regard for the sufferings of His dear Son. And God, delighted in Christ's obedient sacrifice, still does, and God then greatly exalted the Lord Jesus. We read of that in Philippians chapter 2 and in other places. And so it was in John chapter 2, in the incident of the cleansing of the temple, that Christ expressed His perfect confidence in His God and in His work of redemption. That God is no longer delighting in animal sacrifices. Jesus makes it clear by His actions in John chapter 2 in cleansing the temple. And that God does delight in the sacrifice of Christ, which Christ makes it clear. In three days I will rise again if you destroy this body, when you destroy this body. And He went about expressing those truths with the zeal foretold of Messiah in Psalm 69. That was what impressed the disciples. They didn't catch the part about His zeal in His sacrifice and in being raised again in power and glory. They didn't catch that until after He had done it. But at least caught the first half that Christ expressed God's opposition to their sort of animal sacrifices which were degraded and commercialized and could never take away sin. You notice how this played out in Christ's interaction with the disciples as well. You remember when He started to announce to the disciples that He would be taken and put to death and rise again the third day. When He stated explicitly the implicit content of this statement, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it again. When He starts to explain that more explicitly to the disciples, you remember that Peter especially denounced Christ's statement of what He would do. Remember He said, not so, Lord. You remember what Christ's response was, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not, might put in there, thou delightest not in the things that delight God, but rather in the things that delight man. They delighted in the history and the tradition and the comfortableness of their method of worship which they had received from Moses and which they had elaborated upon and to a great extent sullied by their additions. They delighted in all of those things, but they did not delight in the delight of Christ to do God's will. They did not delight in the will of God with regard to the offering of sacrifices to save sinners. That He did not delight in the animal sacrifices, but that He delighted in Christ's sacrifice, and so did Christ. You see, Peter and the disciples did not share Christ's delight to do God's will in this matter. They delighted not in the things that God delights, but in the things that men delight in. And even today, amongst most of us, you see, we delight in our own good works. Oh, we're not all that bad. Look at those people down the street or around across the country or around the world. They're much worse than we are. Surely our works are good enough to save us, or at least to help us to be saved. We don't need a sacrifice. That's too humiliating to our own good deeds, isn't it? It makes us look like we're guilty. And we have no hope. And only a substitute can redeem us. A few days ago, a friend of mine on Facebook who is hopelessly lost. But she reads the Bible and she comments on it. And her comment was that she always felt bad about having to correct St. Paul in her mind. She had read this verse, if God be for us, who can be against us? And she just felt like that needed to be rewritten. If we're for God, then we'll be right. She said it was hubris for us to think that God should weigh in on our side and put his thumb on the scales in our favor and give us some advantage. She just didn't think that was the true spirit of Christ, that Paul had missed somehow the true spirit of Christ. Then some Buddhist chimed in with, Oh, yes, it's like the Buddha and the Hindu gods and da 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 da. Well, then I had to chime in and I had to say, I think you have missed entirely what Paul is saying here. He's not asking God to be on our side. He's not pleading with God to be on our side. He's exalting in the fact that God is on the side of His people who have trusted in Christ. He is on our side. And then He goes on to give the reason why He's on our side. Because He spared not His own Son. That's how we know God is for us. He spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up as a sacrifice for our sin. That's how we know that God is for us. That's Paul's argument. He's not asking God to be for us. He's not speculating that God might somehow be conned into being for us. No, He is for us. How do we know? Because He sent His Son to pay for our sins and to save us from all unrighteousness. No reply. No reply. This is an example of how the world is like Peter. They delight in the things that delight men and they don't delight in the things that delight God. We need and we ought to delight in the sacrifice of Jesus because God delights in it. Because the Lord Jesus delighted in it and still does. Our Savior delights to do the will of his Father. And he represented the situation most acutely in the incident of His cleansing of the temple. And I love that hymn that we sing that expresses the delight of God in His dear Son. O God, our Father, we would come to Thee in virtue of our Savior's precious blood, all distance gone, our souls by grace set free. We worship Thee, our Father, and our God we would, O God, present before Thy face the fragrant name of Thy beloved Son. By faith we view Him in that holy place, which by His dying He for us has won. We share Thy joy in Him who sitteth there. Our hearts delight in Thy delight in Him, chiefest of thousands, fairer than the fair, his glory naught can tarnish, naught condemn. We bow in worship now before thy throne, by faith the object of thy love would see, who in the midst his brethren's song doth lead. To him our Savior shall the glory be. And we therefore are reminded of the fact that because Christ delights to do the will of his Father, to be made a sacrifice to take away our sin, because the Father delights in Christ's delight to do His will, and because the world despises Christ's delight to do God's will, and because through the grace of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit, He causes His people to join in the delight that God has in the sacrifice of Jesus for poor sinners. Therefore, we come to understand much more how it is that God comforts us in the oath He made to Christ that He would be our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All the work of Christ of redemption is a carrying forth of His obedience to that oath of the Father assigning Him the duty to be our great high priest and to arrange an acceptable sacrifice One pleasing to God that takes away our sin. And around this table we celebrate that sacrifice that Jesus made for us all those years ago. The body that was broken, flesh that was torn for us, and the blood that was poured out to make an atonement for us to appease the wrath of God for our crimes which He punished in the body and blood of Jesus. We thank Him for this bread and this wine that picture these life-essential things which the Lord Jesus provided for us so that we might be saved. I'd like to ask Brother Witten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. And the Lord Jesus, the night He was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for our sin. O God, our Father, we come to You amazed at the obedience and delight of Your Son who was full of delight even in the face of His horrible death that He had to accomplish in our place to deliver us from sin. We thank You that He was strengthened and encouraged by the Spirit and that He was certain to complete the work, the assignment that You had placed upon Him to save His people from their sins. We thank You that He accomplished this for us on Calvary's tree. Thank You for that blood that was shed by Him for the remission of sin, the blood of the new covenant, carrying out the promise that You would not remember our sins against us anymore, we who trusted in You, in Your Son unto salvation. And we thank You that His blood has purged away our sins and made us pure and spotless before You, not because of anything we do or any work that we perform, but rather because of what Christ did and the imputation of His blood and His righteousness upon our poor, broken hearts and lives. Lord, we thank You that He left us this cup to picture that blood and help us to realize that His real blood shed is the blood that executes that new covenant promise and by which we are treated as perfect and spotless before You. We thank You that You have allowed us to come together and to remember what Jesus did and to exult in His delight to do Your will for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 171 in the black book. O my Savior crucified, near Thy cross would I abide, gazing with adoring eye on Thy dying agony. Jesus bruised and put to shame tells me all Jehovah's name God is love, I surely know, by the Savior's depth of woe. In His spotless soul's distress, I have learnt my guiltiness. Oh, how vile my low estate, since my ransom was so great. Rent the veil that closed the way to my home of heavenly day. In the flesh of Christ the Lord, ever be His name adored. Number 171.